Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. As an industry, we've done tremendous work and made a ton of progress in enabling the sharing of health information to support treatment. But what we haven't seen is participation by other players that have a need and interest in accessing and sharing information such as health plans and public health and providers really across the continuum. Thanks for joining us on This Week Health Keynote. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to our keynote show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, today we are going to be talking about the exchange of patient data and all things interoperability with Marion Yeager, Chief Executive Officer for the Sequoia Project. Welcome to the show, Marion. All right, well, thank you very much, Bill. It's delightful, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. This happens to be April 23rd is going to mark the 10 year anniversary of the Sequoia Project. Congratulations. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. It's an exciting milestone to celebrate for sure. Well, 10 years, actually that kind of mirrors when I got into healthcare. I came in as a CIO in 2012 and I'll be honest with you, when I came in, I couldn't believe the state of interoperability. So actually, let's let's start there. Let's start with a history, where we started with 10 years ago. Where were we at? What was the state of interoperability back then? You know, circa 2012, there were certainly some early experiences, and we started seeing the evolution of health information networks as healthcare organizations got more digitized. They had the ability to also share information with others that used a similar EHR platform or healthcare organizations that use different health IT platforms via networks. So we were starting to see large health systems, for instance, what I would say were on the cutting edge or leading edge of that. And back in 2012, a lot of healthcare was not yet digitized. And so we were just starting to see that evolve. So I think there were, again, early experiences. We got our start by being a steward for an initiative that was incubated by ONC called the Nationwide Health Information Network. And the first records exchanged via that network were actually in February of 2009. So fast forward to 2012, there was real information being shared for about patients um, receiving care in the private sector through governmental facilities. And it really had moved beyond sort of a proof of concept and it needed a corporate home in the private sector. And that really was what inspired the creation of Sequoia. So who founded the Sequoia Project? How is it organized? And, and what's, its, what's its charter? So we... I was actually a contractor at ONC back in in the day and working on the NHIN. And there were a group of governmental agencies, the Veterans Health Administration, Department of Defense, Social Security Administration, and a number of health systems and HIEs that were sharing information with each other through that program. And so when there was a decision to move 
that network operational support, because it's governed by its own governance structure, that was what led to the formation of the Sequoia Project. So it was, I would say the founders were really the anchor tenants who participated in that network. And they really, you know, did the vetting to assess, is there a value to having sort of the shared approach and a shared you know, trust agreement to facilitate exchange and came back and said, yes. So I actually helped write the business plan and the company was started and structured as a nonprofit 501c3. So we were chartered to really with a broader mission beyond just supporting, providing network operational support, but rather there was anticipation need to have an organization that brought together stakeholders from the private sector and government to work on issues impeding interoperability and that that meant we could um, stand up other initiatives that were independently governed and that because we operate with the public good mission, it was very in keeping with the origins of the effort, which were started by government. And we also recognized that there might be a need to actually partner with government, that we could be an extender of the work that government was doing because we had boots on the ground experience in an operational capacity. So public benefit corporation mm -hmm. to advance interoperability on a national scale, I would assume. Nationwide scale, yes. Fantastic. And you know what, I'm trying to think back to, so I came from outside of healthcare, come into healthcare around 2012. And as I'm looking at the lay of the land, the what made interoperability so hard, first of all, was there was many more EHRs than there are today. I mean, there's been some consolidation and and of that of those platforms. And so I remember trying to build our clinically integrated network and literally it was a hundred different EHRs. And uh, so that was challenging in and of itself. And then we actually got into the data and realized that not all of it was discrete data elements and moving it around was very difficult. We ended up using uh, regional HIE to share data between certain aspects. And then I realized the limitations of that because it was only certain data sets and whatnot. What what makes it so hard? Is it is it that complexity that the people don't appreciate? Well, I think there are, there are certain building blocks you need to have interoperable information sharing that occurs seamlessly. The first is that you really need standards to be integrated into the health IT platforms, whether it's an EHR or an HIE system. And the way that health IT was digitized was accelerated through these governmental incentives in a way that wasn't how the market would have evolved on its own. And so there is, has to be a level of specificity and constraints on the standards so that one system's as, as you exchange information between different systems or between different healthcare organizations entirely or across geographies, that there is that consistent interpretation and ability for those systems to interoperate. So we actually had to go back and what our we really tie some of the success and progress to is that we actually had to go back and retrofit interoperability into these existing platforms that were already deployed and feel how hard that is to do. So it took probably about seven, eight years to mature the standards to get consistency and constraints and testing, really rigorous interoperability testing. And then we also evolved to also recognize that the value of the data wasn't really there. It still isn't. And we, there's a lot we need to do to improve that. So we started by supporting a content testing program and testing data sources. So rather than recognizing that testing a system that is uh, not deployed in a live environment isn't really reflective of what is operating in the real world because there's all kinds of integrations and configurations that are made. And so really doing that content testing is probably the next level of focus area. So here's where I'm going to go with this. 
One, I want to talk about the impact of, of the pandemic. That's probably not the first thing we're going to talk about. I want to talk about 21st century cures. I feel like that's almost the starting point for what our modern interoperability framework is going to look like. But I, I also want to talk about some of the some of the wins and successes uh, through the years. I'm looking at a slide here of we have the eHealth Exchange, which was spun out, but still mm -hmm. has a, a relationship with the Square Project. We have Care Quality which was spun out also as a, a relationship, Pulse, RSNA program, Interoperability Matters. Talk about some of those entities and, and what has happened over the last 10 years with those. So we got our start being a steward for the eHealth Exchange, which was rebranded from the NHIM when it moved from government to the private sector. And so that network is, has its own governance and structure. And then two years later, we actually were contacted by groups of stakeholders who wanted to interconnect networks like the eHealth Exchange with others. And they wanted to do so in a standardized for, frame. And that, that involved a lot of the building blocks that we you know, see for um, the 21st Century Cures contemplates that there was one agreement that all the networks would agree to abide by, and it pointed to a constrained set of implementation guides and rules of the road, so to speak. And so in 2014, Carry Quality was formed. And then fast forward to 2018, you know, all these activities and the testing program that we were supporting for the Radiological Society of North America, that is a means to improve and advance the ability to exchange images, which today are largely a lot of CDs still in place or you know, duplicative scans and whatnot. And so all those activities were actually operating under one corporate entity, Sequoia. And so we realized that there really needed to be a separation of interests. And particularly as the eHealth Exchange became one of the connected networks and carry quality, really couldn't have one part of the organization carry quality enforcing and governing conformance or compliance with another. So we did restructure. There are now three organizations. They have their own boards, their own network governance. And so there are some management services that Sequoia provides, not really a relationship per se, as much as there's dedicated staffing and whatnot to each. So just marketing support and things like that. The important thing for us to realize at Sequoia was we're really adept at incubating and launching new initiatives. And so we realized that there maybe needed to be a systematic approach to how we identify priorities to work on. And that led to the formation of Interoperability Matters, which is a public-private cooperative. And it's led by our membership, which is really just some of the leading minds in health IT. And they, every year, assess what the pain points are for interoperability. And then we go through a consensus process and identify, okay, what is our next charge? So you can imagine with information blocking compliance, coming to light, that's becoming very real, you know, and will be enforced once OIG publishes the enforcement rule that we started with that because we knew that if you're not blocking information, you're sharing it. And again, that's really our goal. And we had concerns that unless there was cooperation among the different actors that might be involved in information blocking scenarios, that it could be weaponized. And we wanted to create a really a community of practice and a spirit of cooperation around that, again, to help navigate these very complex policy and technical issues, which are really at the heart of what we do day to day. It also led to working on data usability to improve the semantics and the value sets, code sets of information exchange so that the, the data really have more meaning consistently, regardless of the manner in which they're the information's exchanged. And then you mentioned the pandemic. We actually facilitated a group of leaders from federal government and state government and local jurisdictions and from the private sector as well to gather lessons learned 
from the pandemic? Where were we struggling to get information? Where was their resilience? And what can we do to improve it? And so we wrote a report with 17 recommendations for improvement there. And then our work continues to evolve, of course. We'll get to our show in just a minute. As you've probably heard, we've launched a new show, Town Hall, on our community channel, This Week Health Community, and it airs on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'll be taking a back seat to some of these people who are on the front lines. Town Hall is hosted by an array of talented healthcare leaders who are facing today's challenges head on. We're going to hear from professionals and their networks on hot button issues, technical deep dives, and the tactical challenges that healthcare faces we have some great hosts on this. We have Charles Boise and Angelique Russell, data scientist, Craig Richardville, Lee Milligan, Reed Steffen, who are all CIOs. We have Jake Lancaster and Brett Oliver, who are CMIOs, and Matt Sickles, a cybersecurity first responder. I'd love to have you listen to these episodes. You can subscribe on our community channel, This Week Health Community, wherever you find and listen to podcasts. Now, let's get to the show. So we get to 21st Century Cures. We've had Mickey on several times. We've had Mickey sort of like share. You just say Mickey and everybody knows who you're talking about in the interoperability (laughs) world. We've had Anish Chopra on as well, who I classify as a, I don't know, he's the cheerleader. No, cheerleader is not the right word. He's sort of a- Visionary. um, Yeah, he's the person out there really spreading the vision. And so we've, we've talked a lot about different aspects of this, but 21st Century Cure sort of changes the game completely and bipartisan. We've talked about this many times on the show, bipartisan. You have so many components of it though. I think people sometimes get tripped up because you have USCDI, you have the, uh, you have TEFCA, you have different aspects of it. And now we have the rule being written, then we have the enforcement being written and there are different entities that are doing both. And, and so in my world, in the provider world, there's a lot of this like, is this going to happen? Is it happening? And every time I have somebody on the show, it is happening. There are dates in place and this is moving forward. And uh, so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about probably Tefka is the most, most relevant to the Square project. So explain Tefka a little bit and, and what Square project's role is in that. Well, sure. So in December of 2016, Congress passed a law called the 21st Century Cures Act, as you mentioned, and there was a part of that that really spoke to the need for uh, a government-endorsed approach to promote interoperable exchange of health information for the nation and looking at the components that existed and and what could we do to further enhance it. So Congress basically charged ONC to convene stakeholders to either develop or support what they called a trusted exchange framework in common agreement or TEFCA. And the idea was that this would be a framework that could be put forward to that networks that wanted to receive this government designated status as being TEFCA compliant could seek and that they, by doing so, they agree to the terms of a legal agreement the common agreement. There's one agreement that everyone would sign, all the networks, which they call qualified health information networks would sign. And that would bind them to a set of obligations to share information with organizations uh, who connect to completely different and unaffiliated networks from their own. And so the idea is focusing on 
what the rules of the road that could apply fairly universally among these qualified health information networks so that there would be enhanced exchange of information for a much broader set of purposes than we see in simple treatment today. So as an industry, we've done tremendous work and made a ton of progress in enabling the sharing of health information to support treatment. But what we haven't seen is participation by other players that have a need and interest in accessing and sharing information, such as health plans and public health and providers really across the continuum and for a multitude of purposes beyond treatment. And so by having the government really lead in that and establishing or supporting a trusted exchange framework and common agreement was seen, I believe, to be very much level setting and creating a piece of critical infrastructure for the nation that we haven't really been able to realize fully to date. So the great thing about Cures and ONC was realizing that this is a real operational activity and that they had the opportunity to work with a, a private sector organization that they would work with an official capacity as a recognized coordinating entity in the RCE. And Sequoia was selected to serve that role in August of 2019, which you can imagine was a tremendous honor and I mean, we've had experience doing this kind of work before through our history uh, historically and with Carry Quality, which is sort of the private sector's version of TEFCA. And so what that means is that we operate with ONC under a cooperative agreement, which is a kind of grant. And the na nature of that allows us to work as more of an integrated team. So we were brought on the inside of a governmental process and had the ability to work with ONC hand in hand on the terms that QHINs would be subject to must comply with, what implementation guidance specifications and standards would have to be supported requiring that at a minimum, the exchange of USCDI, having very clearly articulated expectations on for what purposes information must be exchanged and where you have to respond. So for instance, there's no option. You cannot refuse to exchange information for treatment purposes unless it's illegal to do so by law. And similarly to enable to respond to requests for an, uh, an individual consumer's request for their own information. And it also accounts for support of a much broader set of purposes, all under this common framework, this single framework, to support treatment, payment, healthcare operations, public health, individual access, and government benefits determination, and possibly adding to those purposes over time. The idea here is that having a government endorsed approach carries a lot of weight. And even though it isn't mandated per se, but having these policies and this approach vetted by government has a lot of value to it. So who are the largest QNs out there? So we're in the process, we published some of the key components that are needed to operationalize this QHIN program. And we would, the RCER role is to not only help ONC develop the framework, but we operationalize it. So we will work with candidate QHINs to vet that they meet the criteria, that they had satisfied all the expectations, and then we countersign that agreement and then have an ongoing enforcement role. So we publish the agreement, we publish the implementation guide, and some of the other operational standard operating procedures in January. We're packaging up the next round of artifacts to release, which very soon, one of which will be an application and an onboarding and designation process for candidate QHINs. So there are no QHINs today. Now we have heard there are networks that are interested in seeking that. 
And we could talk about the characteristics of what that network might look like. And then there are also obligations that a QHAM would need to flow down to the organizations that connect to their network, either directly or through other sub-entities. And that's where healthcare organizations play a role. A healthcare organization would be a participant in a network, or if they connect to an HIE and that HIE connects to a QHAM, they might be what's called a sub-participant. And so there's certain obligations that flow down around privacy and security, the appropriate uses and disclosures, cooperation, incident response, things like that. Yeah, I'm looking at you know, one of the ONC, again, a slide deck. It has QN at the top, and then it has individual users accessing that, analytics products, health systems, obviously, EHR products and whatnot. You have health IT providers, pharma players, consumer apps, and, and whatnot. So is the thought process here that the mechanism for securing the data for privacy and, and all those things, is that at the QHIN level or is that at a different level? So the QHINs have, are expected to, to be highly robust, highly secure, high-performing networks. A corollary maybe to the ATM or cell networks where you don't have a million of them, you just have a number and they, they route the transactions to all the other parties that to which they're connected. And so the idea is that there is going to, there is a high bar of security for QHINs. They're going to have to have a security accreditation. We're going to be publishing a standard operating procedure with more details on that here shortly. And then they're going to have to prove that they have good technical security controls in place and et cetera. Now it's possible um, that there could be um, QHINs or other actors in a TEFCA ecosystem or in, in the ecosystem that are not subject to HIPAA. I think most uh, healthcare organizations are very familiar with their obligations as covered entities or business associates under HIPAA. And so you would definitely point to that as sort of a standard of practice among and across the network. But for those who are not subject to HIPAA at all, this contract was able to bridge a gap in current policy where there are some players that are not subject to HIPAA. They might be a healthcare provider that doesn't build administrative transactions. So HIPAA doesn't apply to them, or it could be an app developer that provides a platform and a way for consumers to access their health records. And so the agreement was able to establish that if you're not subject to HIPAA, well, you have to comply as if you were a HIPAA-covered entity and it specifies specific activities they're supposed to be obligated to support. That's at the QHIN level. There are also expectations for privacy and security for those who connect to a QHIN, either directly or through another intermediary. And so we're going to be publishing a standard operating procedure with more details on that. And I can tell you that, again, most folks in this space are likely already subject to HIPAA. We're trying to really respect that and be consistent, but also bridge gaps where there may be folks who aren't subject to HIPAA that, that need to be held to a similar expectation. So the goal of TEFCA is a single on-ramp for connectivity nationwide. The RCE sets policy, working with the ONC, in, in conjunction with the ONC, sets policy and, or, or uh, recommends policy, but then oversees the operation of this, making sure that it is a highly functioning, secure network that facilitates that goal of national mm -hmm. interoperability across the board. Is that pretty close? I think it's pretty close. I think the role ONC would definitely uh, be the authority and setting the policy. We definitely inform it because of our experience in the field and having supported similar endeavors for the past decade or longer. And then ONC, there are certain inherently governmental functions that they can't delegate, such as approving a policy that's 
in the common agreement if there are changes to it. But they've delegated a lot of responsibilities to the RCA Sequoia, as you've characterized, Bill, very much working with the ONC to, to develop and maintain these components, the, the agreement and implementation guides, but also operationalize the testing and onboarding process for vetting QHINs, for supporting the governance structure that would be established where they'll include representations from the QHIN and participant groups and that they would be the ones that government, we would support that. We'll facilitate a secure cybersecurity advisory council because this is really an essential part of critical infrastructure in the U.S. that you can imagine the sensitivity and importance of protecting it, being proactive in doing so. And that's why we actually engaged a chief information security officer for the RCE who will facilitate a cybersecurity council. What's interesting to me, I think we really push back on meaningful use and we say, oh, look, all these unintended consequences, we didn't really think it through. And then I hear people talk about 21st century cures and they're like, they really haven't done anything yet. But it feels like you've done a ton of stuff setting up the foundation to make sure we don't have this same problem that we had with meaningful use. Well, that's right. And meaningful use was a unique point in time because so much of healthcare at the time that the NHIN and some of this early governmental work started was largely paper-based. And so our, the whole healthcare delivery system was, wasn't even digitized until later. And so meaningful use definitely accomplished that aim. The promise and the opportunity that TEFCA presents is the ability to establish a floor of policies and technical requirements that apply across the board that are enabling so that recognizing that there is, you know, very fractured industry, lots of different technology platforms. There's not going to be one technology platform or one network in probably in, in my lifetime, at least in how can we knit those together? The interesting thing, and this is, this is in our experience, it takes about two years to develop the foundation and, and it could maybe take less time. However, it was ex really essentially important for us to make sure we got feedback from the stakeholders who would participate in TEFCA. And frankly, and you know this, if folks are participating and have an, a, an involvement in informing and you know, shaping this, then they're more, there's more buy-in. And then you also know you have some assurance that you hit the right mark. And so for us, we've been extraordinarily um, sensitive and open and embrace feedback. And so even as we continue to iterate and release other standard operating procedures and a fire roadmap and all everything around that, that will continue to get stakeholder feedback. Now, it's like any good IT project, it's going to take a year or so to get early adopters on board. It's going to take another two years to start seeing some traction, refining, and then you start ramping up from there. But doing the solid groundwork up front and getting it right will be an accelerant for the future. Yeah, it's, it's a lot better than redoing things after you've done the Oh my goodness. Yes, um, stop. <laughs> That's so let, me, let me ask you the data sets. So are the data sets driven by USCBI or is, is, is another group looking at it saying, look, that these are the initial data sets that we should be moving around? So and look at it, there are the standards that are being employed for the first set of functionality, which is there are two exchange modalities being supported, query and retrieval of documents, clinical documents in a push of clinical documents. It's called message delivery. The standards that are being required by QHINs to support. Now they can connect and use whatever standards they want to the you know, intra-network, so to speak, but between the networks, they have to support a set of standards and profiles by the integrating the healthcare enterprise IAG and of course the HL7 consolidated CDA. So that's really the most mature and prevalent set of capabilities that exists today at a minimum, populating that with US CDI, which you can 
for the large part, you can, the CDA can be discrete data. A lot, most of the time, a lot of times it is, but it could also be a PDF or whatever. So the idea was to be fairly flexible to allow whatever information is readily available in whatever form to be conveyed. I want to put my old CIO hat on and just talk about implementing interoperability. Most choose to implement interoperability through their system of record, which is the EHR and the EHR provider. Is there a distinction at this point between how the various EHR players are implementing interoperability? Does that question make sense? It makes total sense. And you're absolutely right. So in the early evolution, and what we have today, I would say there are some networks like the eHealth Exchange that connects a large number of HIEs and a large number of healthcare organizations, which are enabled by the EHR vendor and others like Davida and in pharmacies. And there are other networks like Commonwealth that were really founded by EHR vendors that felt, hey, we need some other infrastructure and a record locator service and a different architecture to enable it. And, and then there are some EHR uh, vendors that are networks in their own right, like Athena through AthenaNet. So I would say that the EHR vendors today either enable their customers to connect to a network like Commonwealth or eHealth Exchange, or significant portion of EHR vendors are represented through Carry Quality. So Carry Quality brought together networks that like SureScripts and Commonwealth and eHealth Exchange and other technology enablers that are service intermediaries like No2 and Health Gorilla, and then there are vendors, EHR vendors in their own right. The standards they support are the very standards that were recommended and being adopted through TEFCA. And that is there is a substantial amount of information being exchanged today that Carry Quality announced. This is just transactions between the participating networks in Carry Quality, not the transaction volumes intra network. 310 million CCDAs exchanged in the month of January alone. So if you layer that with the other transactions for query or patient discovery is eclipsed the worldwide transaction volumes of the SWIFT network. So there is just a tremendous, so I would say that is sort of the foundation for treatment. And of course, TEFCA is building off market capabilities and then expanding further to support more modern standards like FHIR. Wow. What was that note? 300 million? 310 million CCDA. Those are the clinical records exchanged in one month. Wow. Um, Insane, right? It's incredible. That that's a yeah, that's a significant amount. Yeah. Uh, it, when you say CCDs at this point, are, are are we still talking the the same old format that I remember where we had to parse those things and do things? Are we seeing discrete data elements come down and and flow in yet? Much more discrete data is available. Yeah, much much more. It's evolved a lot. Again, like anything, it's it's yeah, it just takes a while to mature standards and again through testing and. But it, building a workflow and the vendors have had and providers have had a lot more opportunity and experience to enhance that. But yes, there's a lot of discrete data being exchanged. All right. So above compliance, because a lot of, we have a lot of stuff going on in healthcare. You might know that. I mean, we have a nurse shortage. We have a lot of things going on. Sometimes these things aren't top of mind. In fact, they usually don't ever get to number one. They're usually somewhere in the top five, but they, they just never bubble up to the top one. And, and obviously we had a pandemic for two years. We have a staffing shortage going on right now. But if we were to think beyond compliance, what would you like to see from healthcare delivery providers in, in that space to advance interoperability around our nation? I think that beyond compliance, what we do need to see is increased participation in health information networks 
that's the only way interoperability is going to work is if you participate in a network. And so whether that's an HIE or some other national network or some other mechanism, having broader participation, not so much from the health system perspective, but for providers across the continuum, there just needs to be enhanced in that regard. The other part of it is having a willingness to share information or request information through that network for other purposes as we roll them out for payment and healthcare operations. You can imagine the sensitivity of a healthcare organization releasing a summary record for their patients to a health plan. I mean, there are concerns about that. So what we're doing to really allay those concerns and to get is to get much more specific. What is a sub-use case? What are the data set that would be appropriate? Are there different policies and expectations that doesn't make it such a blanket request and release? So I think that's the next opportunity as well as a willingness to share information to individuals per their own right to access their information. And we recognize there are issues and challenges around that. We're working with policymakers to provide some, hopefully some guidance that would appease concerns that if the uh, healthcare organization due to patient matching error rates accidentally sends the wrong person's record to someone that they're not gonna be in violation of HIPAA. So those are kind of the practical things, so. Well, that brings up two things. One, I wanna talk about for payers. Uh, and the second, which a lot of providers are becoming payers, payers are becoming providers. It's kind of a interesting world we live in. And then I also want to talk about patient matching, but really a patient identifier within the system. Uh, let's start with the payers are involved, are included in the 21st Century Cures Act. I think it was on a different timeline, though, than the, than the providers. Are, are those starting to get matched up a little bit, or is it still a year apart from each other? It's still, it's still apart. Um, and but that's the other opportunity that TEFCA really brings to bear and that in terms of reaching the next level of interoperability is having payers be more active participants in clinical health information exchange. They need the information, you know, they're scrambling to get it by working with vendors and organizations individually. Bringing everyone into the fold is really impactful in that regard. And I, I would assume, well, I, actually, I, I don't even want to go down that path because I don't want to. But it's, I remember early on in the days of interoperability and I used to sit across from physicians and they'd be like, I don't want to share the, the information because of competitive pressures. And they had to educate me on the competitive pressures. And the more they, they talked, the more I was like, I, I think that's unfounded. Like, I, I don't think there's a, a physician practice over there with the IT skills and the, and the time to like mine our records for patients. And if they did, there's a thousand other ways that are so much easier than mining our information to get access to that. And at the end of the day, every provider and payer has information, different sets of information on that, that same event. So I, I'm not, I, I don't really buy the competitive nature. I understand where it comes from on the EHR provider, but I do not understand a payer provider and I'm sure somebody can educate me on, on where that comes from. Let's talk patient matching. Let's talk uh, national patient identifier. Clearly, there's a big push in, in this country for that. There's some privacy concerns around it. But when you're talking about sharing records like this, you have to match up at some point. So what, what's, what's the current approach to this? What's the current thought on this? Let's just talk about what's currently in place and what you're working with. Patient matching, of course, has been a barrier and a challenge forever, more than a decade. I mean, it's just- I mean, within, within our four walls, it's a problem. Yes, exactly. 
exactly, exactly. So when you expand that further to try to match identities between completely different organizations that are otherwise unaffiliated, the issues are even further exacerbated. So we actually did research a while back in conjunction with Intermountain Healthcare. They did a case study about what it, what they could do to do to improve patient matching. And so they actually had a shared set of patients between an HIE in the community and Intermountain Healthcare. And so they knew that those patients should match because they knew they had a, a defined set of shared patients and that's what they tested. And they had ho horrible uh, match results. And when, they, and when they initially started trying to correlate the identities and it came down to a data issue, not surprisingly, there was inconsistency in the identity traits in which they were formatted and expected. And so one was using US Postal Service formatted address and someone was using a different format. And then there were other rules and data cleansing and getting just better data quality. So we wrote a white paper on that a number of years ago. We'd like to update it and further expanded on that with some research that we did in conjunction with the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. And the interesting thing is, if you have a secondary identifier, such as a social security number, the match rates go up to 99.9%. And so, which begs the question, um, do we need a unique patient identifier or do we need to revisit decisions like that about maybe what, is, what are we offsetting? The risk to patient safety, the risk of potential breaches if the wrong information is shared versus you know, someone's privacy being breached. And so there's probably some more updated thinking. We're starting to think through that now about what could we do to sort of advance that, recognizing a unique patient ID is going to help some, but it may not. It's probably going to be a small set of, of individuals that we can't get to otherwise in terms of accurate matching. Yeah, it's, it's not a silver bullet. When I was, again, Southern California, 16 hospitals, and one of the things that happened was we had a significant number of undocumented people who didn't want us to know their information. Yeah. But there were still commonalities in the data set that would tell us, hey, these two people are the same people. And for our own purposes, we did some, we did some data work on it to see if we could match those patients. And to be honest with you on, on, we were able to match those patients pretty well with tertiary data that they were giving us the wrong name. They were giving us no social security number. They were giving us the wrong address. They didn't want to be contacted. So like all that general demographic, you just throw out and you have to start right. over. There's ways to match patients. I don't know what the ramifications would be on a national scale, but on a local scale, we had to do that in order to provide the best care for those people who kept using our, our ED is the place they kept coming to. That's really interesting. I do want to talk about the patient though, a little bit in this because the 21st Century Cures Act is really at the heart of it. I think the reason it's bipartisan is the benefit to health and the benefit to our communities. And so the, the patient hasn't been engaged. Is there a vision for how the patient gets engaged with this data? I know, you know we want to see health systems have the information at the point of care and you know, we want to have the right conversations with people when we get on the phone and all that stuff. But what about me as the patient having my data somehow and engaging in my health? It's a fantastic question. And you're right. I mean, I'm very much at the heart of 21st Century Cures and TEFCA is acknowledging that we have to do more to make it easier for individuals to and caregivers to get access to information, to their own information. And so information blocking 
is a compliance rules. That's one, you know, stick that if you're not sharing information and you don't have a legitimate reason for not doing so, that there are consequences for that. And then TEFCA has an obligation that if you're participating in TEFCA, then you have to respond and share a person's information with them, unless you're prohibited by law from doing so. And that sets a very, very specific bar. So we're building, we have the policy, we have the technical capabilities to do this. So why is it not happening? Well, one is, I think you did note um, that consumers, are they sufficiently educated about their right to access the information? Do they understand what can be done with their information? Are they understand the consequences of that? And then how do you get them actually using those capabilities? We have to have information available for people to use the service. And that's the challenge we have. And it's not a technical issue. It's not a legal issue. It's a policy issue that again, dovetails to this whole patient matching challenge that if you accidentally release the wrong record to someone that you are in violation of HIPAA. There are concerns and that's impeding providers from, from doing so. And so actually, in addition to that, we also realized that we do have folks involved in the interoperability dialogue that represent the perspectives of consumers because of the services they provide, or maybe they're their own personal experiences and they're really health IT insiders, which is so, so, so valuable. We realized that do we really understand other challenges for people across very diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, cultural backgrounds, and different ethnicities and age groups? Do we really have a venue to channel their voices? And we, we didn't really see anybody really doing that. So we are launching a consumer work group that will underscore and look into the challenges for them to get their access to their information from a multitude of perspectives. That's not really solely from through the lens of a you know, health IT insider, which is important, but really from the average person. And how do we make this understandable? How do we make it understandable so that they can be more, have greater health literacy and overcome those barriers? So I think there's more work to do there, honestly. When we sit around at conferences and have drinks and we talk about what the future could look like, it's interesting because the place I always take is patient-centric interoperability. And people look at me like, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, I want the record to revolve around me. I'm the, I'm the constant at the point of care. I'm going to go, the next place I'm going to go receive care, I'm going to be there. If I decide to go to a nutritionist, I'm going to be there. If I decide to go to a whole person healthcare organization, I'm going to be there. And I'd like to have my record blue button style, like press the button, download it, have a little barcode. I walk in and they scan the barcode. They have my record and away they go. I always take it one step too far. And I say, when I leave, I want to take my record with me and I don't want them to have it on their system because I know enough about security to know healthcare hasn't secured my record. I've got right. way too many, Hey, here's your, your information's been hacked. Here's your your, your privacy protection and those kind of things. And that's when people look at me and go, oh, but what about, and I'm like, look, we have to believe in the goodness of people. People want to help other people. If you gave me my record and said, and gave me a, a nice, easy system where I could say, hey, would you like to provide your data to the American Cancer Society? Yes. Would you like to provide it to? Yes. They, they wouldn't have to pay me. I would be like, I feel good. I'm just clicking these buttons and providing it to these people who are doing good research. Instead, what's happening to me is you have these organizations who say, well, we've got all this data. This is really valuable. We're going to mm -hmm. aggregate this data and all these health systems are coming together and my data is in it. And I haven't been asked 
And it's now being monetized to the tune of a multi-billion dollar entity that's going to benefit them. And again, I'm fine with my data being used in, in certain ways, but I'm not being asked. I would really much rather see the patient finally get empowered. This is, I'm, I'm just using the tail end of my show to, to rant a little bit here. Um, but but I wanna, what I want to give you the opportunity to say is, let's assume we work out a lot of those things in, in five years. I'm going to be kind because I know every time I say a year, it's usually double that. But in five years, if everything goes well, how might our health system look different if we get interoperability right? I, I think it could be really game changing. And we we are seeing that there are app and service providers that are providing the type of capabilities you're talking about, for instance, making it easier for an individual to be the control center for their information and in uh, authorizing release of it for research and whatnot. I think that what we'll see is that there'll be a maturation of apps and other platforms that individuals are using and that when it's it's like anything when you have some folks who are actively using and they're the early adopters it's just like the whole it cycle and then you get people that may be laggards and then come into the fold and then maybe there are certain people that just never participate in that but i mean you got to have some critical mass of apps and platforms and use of it to really see that and then i think it'll gain momentum particularly when you think about millennials i mean they're chomping at the bit to, to get that information. And I think that the policy space will evolve as well to account for that. And in TEFCA, we actually, it was really important that app providers that provide individuals access, a platform to access their information, that they're held to the same standards of HIPAA, that they you know, have certain obligations around privacy and security and, and obligations to provide notice to the patient and, and get consent. And so we're starting to see policy catch up with that a bit too. Yeah, the other, I'll close on this. The other thing I've heard now is there's not enough demand from the patients for this data. So why are we doing this? And part of it, I I try to describe this, like as a patient, I don't even know what to do. I don't know who to go and rally around. I don't know who to demand. I've gone to some of the companies I know that are doing this and they say, oh, look, we can can gather your record. And I, I launched their thing and it says, okay, where do you have a record? I have it here. Okay, log into my chart, we'll get this. Where else do you have a record? So I have to, first of all, remember where I have a record. And to be honest with you, I can't remember all the places I have a record. I've lived in eight different states and, uh, and I, I've probably been in the hospital in all of them. So it's, it's, so I sort of looked at that and go, What's, what's the chances of me not having a full longitudinal patient record? It's probably pretty good, but that's probably the case. I, I think the question I want to ask you is, I've had people come to me and say, it, it's for someone who's my age, it's one thing, but what about this generation's being born right now? Can we get ahead of this so that their records are all brought together from now until the time they're my age? Oh gosh, wouldn't that be amazing? I know there are certain HIEs that have that capability and that they actually have information from any different sources and they normalize it and have this beautiful longitudinal record and it's the exception, not the routine available. Possibly, I think so because, and again, it could be enabled by evolving technology approaches and whatnot and also the ability to have 
Imagine savvy consumer that actually has access to their information and they're creating demand, that that's what can, I think, advance the bar. Having a longitudinal record for people being born right now, I don't know, Bill, that's a, that's a tough one to answer. I love the idea. I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a, a couple of questions that I sourced from people and they, they all really centered around the things that are keeping us from making this happen. Is there anything that's keeping us from making this happen today that are the roadblocks that are difficult? There are a number. I mean, and this is really the world in which we we live every day is why this is so hard. And part of it is we need some real focus. And there's so many issues and aspects of interoperability that we need to unpack and try to fix and that we're not going to be able to do everything all at once. And so from where we sit, it's how can we tackle one problem at a time and what are the biggest challenges? I'll tell you, this data usability issue is central because to do anything we've talked about, anything, even for big data and tech companies and and for research and all that, if you don't get good quality, complete data, or if it's not codified in a way that's usably or usable or understandable, then we're really, we might be moving a lot of data, but if it doesn't have use or value in the end use of it, we've failed. And that is a long game for us because that takes a lot of engine in not only defining the expectations from an end user clinician perspective and individual perspective or whatever, but you have to, again, go back and change technology and do some re-engineering and workflow and training. And so I think that's everything we discussed. I think so much of it is solvable. The data usability one is a heavy lift and it's one that we certainly are going to stay focused on for some good long time. It's so interesting to hear you talk about those things because that's in the last couple of months, I've done a lot of interviews, a bunch of conferences and whatnot. And the thing I'm hearing from health systems is hey, this AI and machine learning thing is bringing up a whole new set of problems with our data. Like, like we thought our data, we had cleaned it up pretty good. We've gotten to a good point. We've been doing these optimization projects. And now we realize we have to go through another level of optimization in order to create good data to be used in our models. And I'm like, that's what they're saying, again, within the four walls. And so you're looking at that nationally. That's right. That That's right. It's a big lift, but I think that having a much needed focus and building on lessons learned and being incremental, recognizing we're not going to solve all these issues overnight, but let's, let's stay the course and let's really make that incremental progress. And then time, I, th I think in really five years time and even beyond, we'll start seeing real strides in that regard. Well, Marion, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I love the work that you guys are doing. Appreciate the progress and happy anniversary, of course, to the Square Project. Look forward to catching up with you again as you make progress. This is this is coming down the pike pretty quick, isn't it? It is. It is. I think we'll see more here in the near future on TEFCA. And, and thank you so much for inviting me to chat with you. I've, I've enjoyed it. What a great discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from a channel like this, from these kinds of discussions, go ahead and forward them a note. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. Send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our keynote sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.